Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 today, and we'll be considering this theme of Christ as our great high priest. A wonderful and a glorious theme, one in which I trust that your heart will be warmed by. Our lives in a sinful world is filled with all kinds of difficulty, all kinds of trials and problems, of economic problems, health problems, loneliness, interpersonal problems. All these things are real and they they hit us in different ways. And when we encounter these troubles and pains and these setbacks and these things that are just real in the nitty-gritty of the Christian life, there's nothing like having someone that you can take these to to share with that understands what you're going through. To have a kindred brother, an accountability partner, a spouse, a friend. These things are vital in the Christian life. It is such a comfort to have that. But as Christians, sometimes we can forget that we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that understands even all the more vividly, that can sympathize with our weaknesses like no human can. He perfectly understands because He is uniquely qualified as a merciful and faithful high priest. In our text today, you'll see that we are encouraged to come to Him with confidence, with boldness, because He understands. Now, the context of the book of Hebrews, just very briefly, we don't know who the author is. There's all kinds of speculation, which we won't waste time with. But suffice it to say, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. Amen? And it exalts the Lord Jesus Christ in a very profound way. The date is likely before A.D. 70. A.D. 70, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem. There's no mention of Gentiles. The letter is written to Jewish Christians in the first century. Jewish folks, perhaps some who were not fully convinced of all the ramifications of a new covenant, of a better priesthood, and all of that. Persecution was great during this time. Loss of property, physical persecution was very real uh, to the original uh, recipients of this letter. And so the temptation to turn back, to go to their old Jewish practices, was something that was very real. The writer gives several warnings and exhortations through this letter. of Five explicit warning passages for the purpose of encouraging a call to steadfastness and perseverance. In the first four chapters, the the writer sets out, first of all, Christ is superior to the prophets. Then Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to all the priesthood. And, And really, our text serves as a hinge passage as it introduces the main thesis of his book of Christ being our great final perpetual high priest from 4.14 all the way to 10.18. So let us read the text once again. We've already read the chapter in our scripture reading, but just verses 14 to 16 once again for us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in time of need. Let us pray once again. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would help us to begin to understand and to grasp these great and glorious and grand truths set forth in your word. Lord, that where dullness of heart is there, or coldness of heart is there, that that would be removed and that a new warmth would be kindled afresh as we consider our Savior. Lord, we thank you for our high priest. We thank you for the access that has been permitted and the act of intercession that he gives continually on behalf of all Christians throughout this world. We thank you for our great high priest, Lord. Help us to remove cares and distractions from everything from sniffles to being somewhat under the weather to having a cough to an ear infection to hearing people blow their nose to even our outline with having the formatting problems that we had with it, Lord, that none of these would be a distraction to the biblical truths that are set forth before us. Oh, Lord, we desperately need to hear from You. And so, Lord, speak to the weak one standing before these people. Lord, give quick and ready, receptive hearts to each one here. We even would pray for our young ones that they would grasp something of the treasures and nuggets and the preciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer of the book of Hebrews is not writing as though he's on a pedestal talking to a group of people. He is very much one with them. He includes himself with them. The let us that we see four times in chapter 4 and really throughout the letter, probably the most familiar one, chapter 12, verse 1, Let us therefore run with endurance, right? He places himself with the original hearers of the letter. It's not as though he's elevated. It's not as though he's already done these things. He's including himself in this. And in grammar, this is called a horatory subjunctive where he places himself inside the exhortations. And the writer, as as, as chapter 4 is unfolded, in chapter 4.12, he tells us that the Word of God discerns the very thoughts and intentions of our heart This is after several warnings. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. By the way, God knows your heart and His Word searches the depthness of your heart. In 4.13, He says there's no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare. So picture yourself strapped with your your, uh, ankles and your wrists tied naked on a surgical table being rolled in for exploratory surgery. And there's 26 different surgical lights aiming and shining on you as the surgeon needs to have all that light. And those of us who had had surgery know what those lights are like. It's like, give me my sunglasses. It's bright. And that's like the all-searching eye of God. He sees everything. All things are open and laid bare. If the writer was to stop here in the midst of our sin, it would be hopeless. We would feel like there's no hope I'm full of sin. I'm open and I'm laid bare before God. He sees every defect, every, every, everything that's wrong with me. But the writer now moves to giving encouragements. To give balm for the wounds. As Martin Luther said, after terrifying us, he now encourages us. After pouring wine in the wound, now he pours oil in the wound as we move to this section of Scripture. As I said, this is the writer's main emphasis of the letter is that Jesus Christ is a final perpetual high priest of which fulfilled all the Old Testament priesthood. And he amplifies on that 
but he begins with introducing it here. So we're going to consider this under three simple points. You should have an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. <clears throat> First of all, you have a qualified, perfect, tender, sympathetic high priest. Okay, look at the first word in the text. There's a therefore. If you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you study chapter 4, you'll see several therefores that are there. In fact, there's three previous ones that typically will go right before the verse that he's discussing. Here, it goes all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 17. Can you see that? Chapter 2, verse 17. After setting forth why Jesus needed to be fully human, this is what he says in 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. For what purpose? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who suffer. So that therefore, he's, he's picking up that theme of which he touched on, and then as he talked about the superiority to Moses and all the warnings of the wanderings of the children of Israel, he comes back to this theme. So, why does the writer do this? He's writing to Jewish, Jewish Christians. The application of the theme of a priest and the significance would be very applicable for Jewish people, knowing very thoroughly what the priesthood was like. The priests of Israel, of course, were appointed by God to be mediators between God and man. Very simply, right? An ordinary priest could come so far as the altar to offer sacrifices and all of that, but there was only one man, one priest, the high priest, who could go into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. There was only one person per year that could go into the very presence of God, and then trembling, <laughs> having slain the goat and having the blood in the basin and then going in and having the, the tassel with the bells in case they heard the bells not there, or that to stop ringing, they would roll them out and sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. That was the role of the high priest, having confessed his own sins, having confessed the sins of the people before God. This is known as the Day of Atonement. And then in between those annual events would be the slaying of millions of animals. Christ's cross work and his priestly ministry accomplished for Christians something that the Jews in the Old Covenant never, ever enjoyed. Immediate access to God. Immediate access to God and freedom to come to Him continually, even as the writer says, since we have such a high priest. It's, it's one thing to know about a high priest. It's another thing to possess him. And if you are in Christ, you possess this high priest. Notice what he says here. Since we have a great high priest, the Hebrews, or at least in the Old Testament, to say high priest already means great priest. So what the writer here is doing is saying we have a, adding the adjective, a great, great high priest. The par excellence priest. A priest that has like never come before in the whole history of the world. Perfect and in his uniqueness and his power and his supremacy. And why is he so unique? He goes on to say that he is what? Passed through the heavens. Now this isn't like 
well, you know, like an astronaut, you know, a spatial journey of, you know, going to the moon or something like that, passing through the, the sky. It's not that. You have to get that out of your mind. It, it's not only did Christ ascend, and the, the apostles saw that in Acts 1, he resurrected, of course, and he ascended up into the clouds, the very presence of God. But the point that the writer is making here is that he's transcended the limits of time and space as he entered into heaven itself. He has entered into the reality of what that tabernacle was but a mere shadow. He's entered in into the reality, into the very presence of God, exalted at the right hand, into the real holy of holies, heaven itself. In chapter 9, the writer develops this. In verse 24, he says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into what? Heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He transcended the limits of time and space. He's in the right hand of the Father. And it notice it's for us. A marvelous thing about our high priest is, is that he's both priest and sacrifice. Whose blood was it that accomplished this great work? Well, earlier in chapter 9, he tells us, it's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place. Notice this, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It's his own blood He's the sacrifice. He's actually obtained something that can never be lost. Eternal redemption for all of God's people forever. That is why assurance of salvation is so vital to understand. If you, th if you sit here and think that somehow you can lose your salvation because of your sin, you're saying he is not a worthy substitute, that his blood is not efficacious for me and all of God's people Yea, we hold to the perseverance of the saints here at Grace Bible Church. You cannot lose your salvation. The work of atonement is done. He cried, Tetelestai, it is finished on the cross. And all the work of atoning for sin is done forever. In fact, I love the way the uh, writer opens up the letter as he talks about the superiority to the priesthood and it says that when he had made purifications for sins, notice this, he what? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Can you find me one place in the Old Testament where someone was appointed to the priesthood where it actually says that they sat down? <laughs> There's another animal. There's more sin. There's more blood cutting and slitting of the throat to pour more blood and to offer up more meat on the altar. The priests were always offering sacrifices but this priest finished his work and sat down. Sacrifice completed. Brethren, that is good news. Of course, we know his other duties of intercession as he intercedes on our behalf continue on. And that gives us great encouragement. But look what the writer also says to show his uniqueness. He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. There's an emphasis here on both his humanity, right? His name, Jesus. But also the Son of God. His divinity. That hypostatic union that, yay, He is the God-man. 100% God. 100% man. Uniquely qualified for this role. 
high priest course under the law were accounted as good and respectable persons, but they were still sinful men. They were but faint types of this high priest. God the Father said at His baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration that this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. An office of dignity, a unique office. God became a man that He might become a merciful and sympathetic high priest. He alone is qualified to bridge the gulf between sinful man and Creator. Well, as great as this transcendent great high priest is, it would be wrong to imagine him as removed from our human experience. And that takes us to verse 15. Would you look at that with me? It's very easy to read this quickly and overlook the significance. I want you to follow along. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me just stop there. Those of you homeschool moms, those of you grammar buffs, What's wrong with that phrase? (laughs) Double negative, right? So, I'll get to that in a minute. He says, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The NAS, being more of a a wooden translation, captures the double negative, and a double negative in Greek equals a a glorious, powerful positive that he we do not have and that he is unable to. In other words, yes, we do have a high priest who can fully sympathize with us. What does the word sympathy mean? Does it mean to kind of offer a kind word and say, I'll pray for you. Yeah, I guess I can imagine what that's like. You know, the word goes way deeper than that. It's the idea to be affected with the same feeling as another. To actually weep with those that weep. To actually feel some of the pain. Now, we in our limited, in our weakness and all of that, we, we can't do this perfectly, but that's the idea. And so when it's talked about as far as our perfect high priest sympathizing with us, he fully understands. It's more than a knowledge of weakness, but a feeling of it. The old King James says, who cannot be touched with your infirmities. Maybe we illustrate it like this. God forbid one of our military men, we have several here, during training exercises, there's an accident and someone loses a leg. Those of us who have two legs may walk in and pay a visit, may offer to pray and encourage his buddies from the field might come and, and seek to encourage him, but it's not until the man with the crutch, the man that has already lost a leg, that comes in and sits down and says, I really know what it's like, but I've been able to get through this then that is one that can truly sympathize. To enter in into that weakness, it's more than just a compassion. And we've all gone through this. But Christ, how much more as He entered into our sufferings and affliction, He understands the limitations of our humanity. It is He alone who can fully sympathize with your weaknesses. In acoustics, there's something called sympathetic renaissance, which... If we had a grand, another baby grand in the back there and Cindy was to strike middle C, that you could faintly hear it back there on the other piano. Brethren, as the chords of trials are struck in your life, there is a sympathetic renaissance in heaven. That as you experience the difficulties and the pain and the setbacks 
and the struggles with sin and the fighting, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that there is a, a, a resemblance in heaven of which Jesus feels this and fuels his intercessory prayers on your behalf. Consider his earthly ministry as we've been learning through the Gospel of Mark. One that entered in into the pain of others. One that would go and touch lepers. That would allow unclean, menstruating, hemorrhaging women to touch him. And all of this, things that would be considered unclean, he entered in into their suffering and was there for them. He fed the hungry. He was full of sympathy and compassion. As it says before the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, that he was filled with compassion. And the first one with the Jewish people was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus understands. Jesus knows. Now in heaven, He continues to minister to the weak. We have the Gospel accounts to show what His earthly ministry looked like, but now in heaven, He continues. You see, He knows the frailty of the human condition. He understands the weakness of our mind. He understands the weakness of our flesh. He understands the dull affections that we might have. He understands when we're weak, when our strength is so weak we can barely roll ourselves out of bed. He understands the power of sin. And the way of the world is to despise the weak, isn't it? Christ doesn't despise. He sympathizes. Christ doesn't despise when He sees you in your weakness. He sympathizes with you. And this high priest is further unique in that he was perfect and sinless. And we've already alluded to this. He was perfectly separated from sin. Sin never entered him. Just flip the page to 726. Another beautiful priestly passage here, but listen to what it says. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted in the heavens, who does not need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own and then for the sins of the people, because this he did, notice again, once and for all when he offered up himself. Perfectly sinless. That is, there is no temptation that led him to commit the act of sin. You can't say that Jesus didn't understand. He does know. Now, it's not as though he was tempted to surf the internet too long at night or to watch the late night movie or the Tonight Show like you might be tempted to. But in general terms, he understands in all areas what it is to experience that temptation. We've seen it several times where they're wanting to make him a king and make him a ruler right off the, right off the bat. Temptations to power, temptations to prestige, all varied temptations. He hungered, he thirsted, he was weary, worldly influence, desertion of friends, discouragement, all of this, and yet without sin, he understands. The children's catechism, did Jesus ever sin as all other men do? No, he was holy, just, and pure. This is the ground of our hope that our high priest has conquered temptation. And why is this important? Because his sympathy, brethren, is in the purest form. My spouse or my buddies might be able to emphasize and or sympathize with me to some degree, but Jesus, his sympathy is in the purest form. 
It is not necessary for Christ to sin to fully identify with your struggles. In fact, sin is not necessarily a part of our humanity. Adam was created without sin. It is sin that distorts and defaces our humanity. It is sin that that distorts and mars the image of God that is made within us. It is sin that kills sympathy and hardens our hearts and makes us self-centered so that we don't want to be sympathetic. Christ was without sin, so He alone is the perfect tenderness and sympathy that we will find in no one else. He was also severely tempted by the devil, as you know. He was tried even by the Father as it pleased the Lord to bruise Him and to crush Him. The implications of His sinlessness is very significant. If Jesus sinned, He would also need atonement, right? He would also need someone to stand in His place. And by the way, don't ever think that His divinity made it easier for Him not to sin. Oh, it's easy for Jesus He's 100% God. I mean, come on, it's easy for him to say no to sin or no to this. No, no, get that out of your head. That's the mystery of the hypostatic union where where the God-man is joined together, fully God, fully man, joined together in one man. In fact, I think the opposite is true. His divinity made his temptations and trials immensely harder for him to endure than us. He had all the same feelings that we had, but think about it, with much higher standards of righteousness. A more keen awareness of the evils of sin and where sin will lead those who do not repent to the everlasting fires of hell. Maybe I can try to illustrate it like this. Think of our human bodies. And when you experience pain, severe pain, intense pain, on the battlefield type of pain, eventually the pain shuts off. What happens? Our bodies are wired in such a way to where we go into shock or we become unconscious. Okay? And so there's a degree of pain which we never experience. And this simple principle works with temptation. There is a degree of temptation that we will never experience because Even as a strong believer walking with the Lord for 40 years, when the intensity of the temptation gets intense enough that somehow we will sin, we will give in. Christ had no such limitation. He took the full extent of what Satan would throw at him. And he never failed. He learned obedience from the things he suffered, it says in chapter 5 and verse 8. And by the way, uh, just a comment about the whole priesthood. Once the temple was destroyed, there was no more temple to offer sacrifices and no more need for a human priest because he is the par excellence, the great and final perpetual high priest. So any attempt to either re-sacrifice Christ on a weekly basis in a so-called mass or any attempt to establish an earthly priesthood is an abomination and goes directly against the Scriptures. Christ is the final priest. He is the the priest that fulfills all. If you have a family member that's in the Roman Catholic Church, or a friend, and and you want to help them to see these things, study the book of Hebrews with them. (laughs) They will, it, it just, it, it spells it right out. It just totally conflicts with their doctrine. Well, having set forth clearly before us these treasures 
of who Christ is, the writer comes to two exhortations, and we're going to look at these briefly. The first is this, and it's found at the very end of verse 14. Do you see it there? Let us hold fast our confession. In light of these great and wonderful treasures and realities, hold tenaciously fast to your confession. The word here is krateo. It it means to possess power or to literally to take hold of, to seize control of, and to hold on to. Figuratively, it means to adhere to a creed as it's used, I think, in both nuances here. And it's present tense. Let us continue to hold fast to this confession. But what is the confession the writer is speaking of? Well, we can think of several different things, possibilities. But considering the context, the original hearers, I think it points to their confession of who Christ is. The writer is setting forth who Jesus really is. And of course, that's naturally shown in baptism, which we've recently seen that out just last month. We've had a baptism. It's declared in the public declaration in baptism. It's what every member of Christ's church should have ready on their lips. It's what Paul says to confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart. It is a confession of who Christ is. Philip Hughes in his commentary says it is a confession that we are to hold inwardly in the heart and outwardly professed before men. We have to remember that a confession of Christ in those days costs something. It costs something. There's persecution that was live and active and, and, and very real then. There were very few fair-weather followers, and most would be truly converted and earnest if they believed these things. False professors in those days had nothing to gain, unlike today. Charlatans, people being raised up, people starting things, starting whatever. They had nothing to gain in this day. Why should you hold fast to your confession of Christ? First, your heart is deceitful above all else, Jeremiah tells us. Uh, we can tend to be weak and foolish, so we need to watch and pray. We need to remember who Christ is. We need to remember His intercession for us. It's, it's easy to remember, well, it's not, this is even difficult, that we have free access and to come to the throne of grace, but we often forget that He is already praying and interceding on our behalf. The world is a dangerous place for the Christian. It's seeking to shape us into its mold. And so we need to hold fast to our confession. I'm a pilgrim in this life. This world is not all I have. I'm here today. I'm gone tomorrow. To hold fast. Likewise, the winds of unorthodoxy are blowing everywhere. Ephesians 4, Paul develops this. To not be tossed here and fro about every wind of doctrine. Here comes this new thing. Here's preterism. Oh, what's this all about? And to run after that. And, and all these different things that sprout up, it seems like, every couple years. And a whole bunch of people get excited and run after it. To not be tossed to and fro. To hold fast. To, t- to seize tenaciously to your confession of who Christ is. Never lose your grip on Christ. Hold fast. I remember that movie years ago, The Master and Commander, a wonderful movie of the English and Napoleon and the battles that were taking place in the early 1800s, and there was a battle scene about to take place, and as the men were were getting their fortitude and getting ready, 
there was an old man, a young boy that looked over to an old man that had hold fast tattooed on his fingers there. And that's the imagery to hold fast, to hold tenaciously to. And we hold fast to Christ in everyday battles because the world, the flesh, and the devil is, is, are, are always opposed to us. But we need to remember this great truth that He is holding us as well. That He will never let go of us. John MacArthur said, true believers hold fast as God holds them fast. So we've seen that Christ is a sympathetic high priest and that we're to hold fast to our confession of Him. And the second response that the writer gives in light of these glorious realities is found in verse 16. Let's look at it. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Because we have a representative in heaven, we are encouraged, we are invited, we are bid to come, to come to the throne of grace. You know, it, after Christ's crucifixion, and uh, the, when, that, when that veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, that is symbolic of really what, what the writer of the Hebrews is actually saying. There is now free access to God based on the work of Christ. Draw near. Let us draw near again. It's a present active. It's, it's let us keep on drawing near. It's something that he uses in chapter 7 and 10, other places in this letter. And remember that it is a throne, but it is a throne of grace. What more would the Christian want but a grace? More grace. It was, we are saved by grace through faith. And this is where Christ is. And it's one of the greatest privileges we have to come boldly with confidence to the throne. Uh, the idea here, though, and we have to be careful, is that we're coming to royalty. Wait, there's a throne. We're coming to royalty. Yes, we are, but we are bid to come. He possesses all riches and wealth and abundance. Riches and honor are His. He rules His kingdom. He rules the world from his throne. We need to remember what the hymn writer says. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. Prayer should be the delight of the Christian. And we need to remember that we're not coming to a throne to be scolded. See, if you have the wrong view of God and the wrong view of Christ, it's as though, oh, well, we're, I'm going to come, but Oh, I hope I'm not. No, that's wrong. If you truly understand the gospel and you understand that every one of your sins has been paid for, now you don't come in arrogance. You still come with reverence, but you come with confidence. Just as the writer says, knowing that He is there and that He is interceded. Christ has purchased this access to the throne of grace if you're a child of God and it can never be taken away. It matters not if you're in a prison cell. It matters not if you're being tortured with bamboo shafts going under your fingernails. It doesn't matter. This is not, cannot be taken away from you. He bids you to come, but how? We've already said it with confidence, with assurance, with boldness. The word literally means, uh, uh, Thayer gives this definition, the first definition is actually a freedom of speaking and unreservedness of speech. You see why they've, they've chosen these words? Because that would, <laughs> that would be a lot of words to translate one Greek word. Free and fearless confidence. A cheerful courage, he goes on to say. But 
you unite those things together, a confidence and assurance, and to speak freely. And we speak freely because we have a high priest that has purchased our salvation. Every believer is received according to the finished work of Christ. There are no degrees of acceptability. It's not as though you take a number at the DMV and you sit down and you kind of wait, and well, you only read three chapters this week. We're going to put you to the back of the line. Wow, you read the whole book of Genesis this week. You're up to the front of it. There's no degrees of acceptability. If you're a child of God, even if your little faith as in Pilgrim's Progress, you have full and free access to God who is omnipresent and omniscient and knows every need and can tend to every believer at any given time. This is in stark contrast to the Old Covenant, isn't it? Where only once a year the high priest could gain access. This is one of the marvelous revelations of the whole book of Hebrews and even of the New Testament. Only Christianity can give sinful creatures confident access to God. I'd like to ask the question, what will you find at the throne of grace? We've already said we're going to find a high priest. We're going, to, we're going to find one that's been interceding, right? And so forth. But there's a purpose clause in our text, and it's always important to pay attention to those. Look with me at it. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the reason. That's why we're coming Not only mercy for past sins, grace for our sanctification in the present life. It's to find grace in every situation. And and when does this help come? Notice that the the translators of the different, I looked at about eight different translations. They all struggle to, to communicate this. To find grace to help in time of need. That doesn't quite communicate it. Because I might say, well, okay, God, um, by the way, I need this right now, so please give me the grace. No. He wisely gives it, and the force of the Greek is it in the nick of time. Right at the just the right time when you need it. You remember when Paul came three times to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 12? And what is the Lord's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Right? And so sometimes his timing may not be our timing, but we know that we will find grace there. Mercy and grace at just the right time. Child of God, be encouraged that we are not being bid to come to a throne of merit, a throne of judgment, a throne that's only for the worthy, but it is a throne of grace. This is great encouragement for weary pilgrims. Weary pilgrims like you who go up through the valley of the shadow of death, who experience the hill of difficulty, to experience the different victories and trials of the Christian life that we can come at any time. And he knows this is great encouragement. And so don't neglect the throne when you're encountering trials. It is this place where you find encouragement, power, and wisdom, sympathy, and eternal love. You see, the problem with the recipients of this letter is that they were tempted due to persecution to turn back. It's so much easier to go back to what we know, what has always been right in the Jewish code and so forth. In the face of opposition, some were turning away and even the warning to apostasy is given in this letter. Don't turn back. 
in the face of temptation, remember what Paul said. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will what? Provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I submit to you that one of the keys to this verse, and you should write it down in your Bible, is one of the reasons why he enables us to escape it is because in the midst of those temptations, we run to the throne of grace. And when we see our Savior interceding for us through the eye of faith, when we are encouraged by the truth here to come with assurance and confidence, we then have proper perspective and can gain victory over any difficulty that opposes us. I must hasten to just a few concluding comments. Let me ask you first, is Christ your high priest today? Do you know Christ today? Are you a stranger to His grace? Are you a stranger to His work? Will you respond to Christ today? He is tender and sympathetic. Let me ask believers, how will your prayer life change? Do you just pray like for, you know, at 6.45 to 7 before you drive to work and, and that's it? Do you not realize that during a break in the midst of work, uh, in the midst of construction, the midst of software planning, in the midst of anywhere that you have access to the throne of grace and that He is interceding for you, pray often, come, keep short accounts with God. I mean, just keeping in tune with your own sin and simply confessing that on a continual basis throughout the day is vitally important. And to take requests to Him. Hold fast to your confession. That's why we, we actually hold, besides our statement of faith, we actually hold to a confession of faith. We believe it to be a summary of what the Bible teaches theologically. You know, and, and so to hold fast to our confession of who Christ is and the confession of faith simply does a good job at summarizing what that is. Rather than just saying, oh, we have a confession, here it is. No, you have to study this and be able to articulate it. Come to the throne of grace. You're bid to come with assurance and confidence, boldness, to receive grace at the right time. You see, as I began the sermon, we do experience hindrances and trials and difficulties in the Christian life, setbacks, discouragements, uh, shadows cast by our own sins, and, and we can just become weary. We can become burdened down. And we need to be reminded that there's nothing, not even our own sin, that can separate us from God if we will come and confess it. And I think sometimes people are so focused on others that they ignore their own sin. They're, 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 they're like blind eye doctors, you know, that let me examine your eyes and, and the person that can't see. If you've got so much sin yourself that you need to deal with, don't think that you're such a, you know, discerner of sin and others. Take your eyes off yourself. Some are so busy with the woe is me that they lose sight of, 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 of their relationship with God. And I think there's also another application and a healthy church should be a church that is made up of those who love to be together 
and then who enter in into one another's lives to show compassion, to show sympathy to one another, to remind a brother that maybe you forgot these truths and point them back to Christ. This is why the, the Bible says in chapter 10, in Hebrews actually, let us consider how to stimulate one another with love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I pray that you will come to the throne, cast yourself upon His mercy, confess and see your sin, throw off your own self-righteousness, throw off your luggage of good works and all the good deeds that you think you have done, and come to Him and beg Him to save you. There's only one way to come to the throne of grace. And that is to confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Remember that God demonstrated His own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't know Jesus, may today be the day of salvation. You heard it read several times. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for the treasure the preciousness of Christ. We thank You, O God, that He is a suitable Savior, that He is our great High Priest. We thank You for His present intercession, that we receive all the present benefits of Christ as well. Remind us, O Lord, that we have a Savior that is interceding for us. All too easy. It's it's easy to think that He died for us 2,000 years ago and isn't that wonderful and He's in heaven, but yet His active priestly work continues even for us today. Lord, may, may we make use of this wonderful privilege to come often to the throne of grace. We thank You for our time in Your Word. Have Your way in our hearts, O Lord. Convict us where conviction is needed. Encourage us where that is needed. But Lord, most of all, set Christ high and lift it up before us that we would see Him afresh this day. And we pray in His precious name. Amen.